0: Thank you for joining us today. We'll continue our study of the Gospel of Mark. We'll be discussing Jesus' transfiguration, fasting, and the power of the Holy Spirit within us as Christians. So if you'll open up your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9, we'll begin our lesson. So why don't I open us up in prayer. Our Father in Heaven, we thank you so much for this group. We thank you for the opportunity to gather together. And we thank you for your Word as we continue our study of the Gospel of Mark this morning and study about the transfiguration and the fact that you've given us the Holy Spirit to live in us and the power that we have, if we just tap into that. Father, you've just revealed so much to us through your word, through the Bible. What a great tool it is for us to continue to encourage us, to teach us about you, i just ask that you put on each of our hearts those things we need to hear today and help us apply it so we can continue to be transformed into the people that you want us to be and be your light to this crazy world and we pray all this in jesus name amen okay so we are in mark 9 and just to set up where we left off jesus has now been with the disciples for a little over two years While there'll still be some miracles, he's primarily now really focused on the final training aspects with the apostles. We saw last week he gave them a little test with two questions, and we talked about that. He asked, who do people say I am, and then who do you say that I am, which is the most important question that we all have to answer. Everyone will have to answer that, and that answer determines your eternity. And if you're not sure about that answer, go listen to the recording from last week. We also saw last week that as Jesus began to try to tell the disciples about how he was going to have to suffer and be killed and he was going to rise again after three days. We saw Peter stick his foot in his mouth once again and, you know, step up and rebuke Jesus and say, no, that isn't going to happen Jesus told Peter to get behind me, Satan. So we discussed that at length last time. But you can see the disciples are still a little confused. And so now Jesus is going to take a few of them and actually show them his glory in the transfiguration. So that's primarily what we're going to spend our time on this morning. So let's start in in chapter 9, verse 1 of Mark. And he was saying to them, this is Jesus with the disciples, Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who shall not taste of death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come into its power. Okay, so we're going to see the ones he's referring to that are standing right there. It's going to be Peter, James, and John. You'll see that in just a second. He's saying you're not going to die until you actually get to see what the kingdom of God and its power, what it will look like. Okay, that's what he's saying right there. So he's making a promise that they would see the visible manifestation of the Lord's divine glory, and they're going to see the miracle of what is referred to as the transfiguration. And they're going to get to see that prior to Jesus' resurrection, and Jesus is going to do that to help strengthen their faith. Verse 2, And six days later, Jesus took with him, here it is, Peter, James, and John, okay? So those are the ones that he was referring to. And let me just quickly, because I've had a couple of people say this to me before. You'll run into somebody say, there's errors all over the Bible. I mean, how can you believe that thing? There's errors, errors, errors. And one of the ones that gets pointed out, because it's so easy to find, is they'll say, see, here, he says it was six days later. In Matthew, in verse 17, 1, it also says six days. But if you go look at Luke, chapter 9, verse 28, Luke says eight days. And they say, see, see, you can't trust the Bible. It's all messed up. Well, I think the explanation there is Matthew and Mark count the days between, and Luke counts the day he said it and the day that he takes them with him. So that's an easy explanation, but I just point that out because I've had that thrown at me from time to time. So let's keep reading. Jesus takes with him Peter, James, and John, brought them up to a high mountain by themselves. We don't know exactly where this mountain is, but it's likely that it could be Mount Hermon, which is the highest peak right around where they are right there in Caesarea Philippi that we talked about last time. The elevation there is about 9,200 feet. So that's probably where they are. And he takes three, perhaps these are the three apostles that Jesus is closest to. But another reason may be from Deuteronomy 17.6, and we've talked about that before, where the Old Testament law required truth to be confirmed by at least two to three witnesses. So he's taking two to three so that this truth can be confirmed. So he takes them up this high mountain. And it says, and he, being Jesus, was transfigured before them. And when you go look at the original language, the Greek, this word transfigured is where we get our word metamorphosis. So he was totally changed before them. And this is most likely Jesus going back into his eternal state. And what this shows us is Jesus really didn't have to die. He chose to die for our sins. Jesus could have gone back to heaven, into his eternal state anytime that he wanted to. He could do that very easily without passing through death here. But he had to go through death because if he didn't die here, then he wouldn't have paid the penalty for our sins, and we are lost. We could never get right with God. So that's the plan. He keeps telling them that's the plan, but now he's showing them what he is going to look like in his eternal state. And by the way, we get eternal bodies as well. And we're going to see in a minute a couple of other people that are in their eternal state. And it describes it in verse 3. It says, and Jesus' garments became radiant and exceedingly white. So this symbolizes purity. And it was so white, it says no launderer on earth can whiten them anymore. Okay, I added anymore. That's how white they were. This is a preview of what's described in Matthew twenty-four thirty, as well as elsewhere. Let me just go over there and read that for you. This is the second coming of Jesus. It says, And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And so that's what this is describing. He's in this eternal state. That's what we will see. If you're taking notes, you want a couple of other verses on that. You can go take a look at Matthew 25, 31, and also Revelation 19, 11 through 16, where Jesus comes down with us, and he's been on a white horse. And so let me pick back up then right there. We're in verse 4, and it says, "...And Elijah appeared to them along with Moses, and they were conversing with Jesus." So this is interesting. So either Elijah and Moses are given temporary bodies, or maybe they've already received their glorified bodies. Maybe they received theirs early. I don't know. It's interesting. But they're having this conversation with Jesus. And Luke 9, verse 31 says that they were discussing Jesus' upcoming death. And Peter is going to interrupt their discussion here in a minute, but let's talk about why Elijah and Moses. These are the two most credible witnesses from the Old Testament. We know Moses gave us the law, the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Old Testament. And Elijah was the greatest prophet of the Old Testament. So everything after the five books is called the prophets. When you hear the Old Testament referred to as the law and the prophets, the law is the first five books and the prophet is what's contained in everything else. And so you've got the two most credible witnesses from the Old Testament there in their glorified state, talking with Jesus, talking about his upcoming death. The other interesting thing to me is Moses is here. And you'll recall Moses, after leading the Israelites through the wilderness out of Egypt for years and years and years, Unfortunately, he did not get to go into the promised land. Remember, they needed water out of the rock, and God told him to speak to the rock to get the water out, and instead he hit the rock with his rod to get the water out. And because of that, God said, you disobeyed. You're not going into the land. And then he was buried. He got to see it from afar, but he didn't get to go in. Well, here God is so gracious, now he's in the land. He actually gets to stand foot on the promised land. That's where he is. He's in Israel. I thought that was interesting. I don't know if you ever picked up on that little nuance there. So Moses and Elijah, they're talking to Jesus about his upcoming death. And here comes Peter. He's going to stick his foot in his mouth again. Remember, he is kind of like the spokesman for the apostles. Now Peter is going to interrupt their conversation. Jesus is having a conversation with Moses and Elijah, and Peter's going to interrupt. And Peter, answering, said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here, and let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to answer, for they became terrified. So the three apostles are terrified. They're going, what in the world is going on? I mean, this is they've never seen anything like this. It's interesting to me also that they knew immediately that it was Moses and Elijah. There's no introduction here. How did they know that? Maybe when we get to heaven, there's no need for an introduction to anybody. Maybe that's part of the glory of heaven. I find that fascinating. But Peter interrupts Jesus here, and I think what Peter is trying to do here, he wants to try to avoid Jesus dying as he's been describing, just read about that in the prior chapter, and he got rebuked by it. But he also may be referring to what Jesus just said in verse 1. Remember in verse 1, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there's some of those who are standing here who shall not taste of death until they see the kingdom of God. So maybe he thinks this is it. It's happening. This is the kingdom of God. Jesus doesn't have to die. I'll build three tabernacles. Tabernacles are kind of a tents or booths. It's like the celebration of the Feast of Booths. You've maybe heard of that before. That's one of the Jewish celebrations that's referred to in Leviticus. Let me show you that real quick. So it'll make this more clear to you. Leviticus 23, 42. Let me actually start in verse 39. This is where this comes from. It says, On exactly the fifteenth day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the crops of the land, you shall celebrate the feast of the Lord for seven days, with a rest on the first day and a rest on the eighth day. Now, on the first day, you shall take for yourselves the foliage of beautiful trees, palm branches, and leafy trees and willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. You shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. It shall be a perpetual statute throughout your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall live in booths for seven days. All the native born in Israel shall live in booths, so that your generations may know that I had the sons of Israel live in booths when I brought them out from the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So that's where Peter is coming up with this. That was meant to commemorate the Israelites when they came out of Egypt and wandered through the wilderness and lived in tents, and they were dependent on God during that time. So this is what Peter comes up with, and he's hoping that maybe Jesus is going to just establish the kingdom right now. That's what he's hoping. Now, what's going to happen is God, the Father, is going to interrupt Peter. God, the Father, is going to interrupt Peter's interruption, okay? Okay. Here it comes, verse 7. Then a cloud formed, overshadowing them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son, listen to him. This cloud, it may be similar to the cloud of God in the Old Testament that the Israelites followed. It was the Shekinah of glory. It would hover over the tabernacle, and then when it would move, the Israelites would pack up and keep moving through the wilderness so it was probably something similar to that. But what God the Father is saying here, he's saying don't put Jesus on par with Moses and Elijah. When you look at the same account in Matthew chapter 17, verse 6, it says that the three of them fell to the ground. God the Father here is probably rebuking Peter once again. He was rebuked in the last chapter. Now he's getting rebuked again. But Matthew 17, 7, a little more detail on this account, says that Jesus then told them to get up and to not be afraid. Verse 8, it says, And all at once they looked around and saw no one with them anymore except Jesus only. So the preview of the kingdom, it was over. It was not going to be established right then. Verse 9, And they were coming down from the mountain. Jesus gave them orders not to relate to anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man should rise from the dead. So Jesus didn't want an incomplete gospel proclaimed, a gospel of healing and raising the dead, all these miracles that had happened, followed by this divine glory. The gospel has to include Jesus's death, burial, and resurrection, and he had to die, as I said, to pay for our sins. That's the gospel. And after Jesus died and rose from the dead, It would then become more clear to them that Jesus came to conquer sin and death, not to overthrow the Roman government. And when you look at the account in Luke, Luke 9, verse 36, it says that they obeyed and they didn't tell anybody. So they did obey, they didn't tell anybody. But if you go over and look Peter after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, if you go look in 2 Peter 1, let me go over there, I'll read that to you. Peter does refer to this in his second letter. It's in 2nd Epistle of Peter, chapter 1, beginning in verse 16. Peter says, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. That's what he's referring back to, and you'll see. Verse 17, For when Jesus received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory, referring to God the Father. It says in quotes, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. That's what God the Father said at the Transfiguration. Verse 18, And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. So here's Peter. Jesus said, Don't say anything now. And Peter waited, and now after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, he wrote it in one of his letters. Of course, the inspired Word of God. Yes? Verse 7 says they were enveloped in a cloud. Yes. Was that uh, Moses, Jesus, and Elijah enveloped in a cloud, or all six of them enveloped? It doesn't say they were enveloped. It said a cloud formed and overshadowed them. So that's why I think the cloud is more akin to what we see in the Old Testament. There was always a cloud over the tabernacle, which was the presence of God. The NIV says enveloped. There. Yeah. Anybody else have something else? I didn't go back and look at the original Greek. Anybody have an ESV? Yep. Yeah, says overshadowed. It's, it's overshadowed. That's what you got. The ESV and the NASB, which I'm reading from, are going to be more of a direct translation. And the NIV going to be more of an interpretive, written in more clear English language to make it easier to read, but I think it really is signifying the presence of God in that cloud. Okay, I want to show you one other verse, Philippians 3, 20, because I keep talking about our heavenly bodies. Philippians 3, beginning in verse 20, says, For our citizenship is in heaven, this is Paul writing, from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior the Lord Jesus Christ, and here's what I want you to see, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory by the exertion of the power that He has even to subject all things to Himself. So we will eventually get these heavenly bodies as well. The time of the rapture is when we will get our heavenly bodies, whether we're dead or alive and get raptured up. We've talked about that before, so I won't spend more time on that today. Let's go back over to the text, just to pick back up with verse 9. Jesus gave them orders not to relate to anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man should rise from the dead. So Peter obeyed it, as I pointed that out. Verse 10, and they seized upon that statement, what Jesus just said, discussing with one another what rising from the dead might mean. Okay, Now, those three, as well as Jesus, had raised people from the dead. So they knew what raised from the dead actually was. But what they're confused about is how in the heck is Jesus' death and rising? How does that fit into his mission to restore the kingdom of Israel? In fact, you can go even look after Jesus appeared to them after his death, burial, and resurrection. In Acts 1-6, it says that they were still confused. So they still don't quite understand what this all means, how this is all coming together. And remember, they don't have the Holy Spirit yet living in them. The Holy Spirit hadn't been given yet. So they're trying to sort this out, verse 11, and they began questioning Jesus, saying, why is it that the scribes say that first Elijah must come? So they believe Jesus is the Messiah, but then they're saying, okay, if you're the Messiah, where's Elijah? Now they had just seen Elijah, but Elijah, when you look in Malachi 3.1, the last book in the Old Testament, as well as in Malachi 4, verses 5 and 6, it basically says Elijah is going to come as a forerunner before the Messiah is going to arrive. So the Old Testament Israelites, they're looking for Elijah to come first. And they're going, all right, if you're the Messiah, where's Elijah even though they had seen him, but everybody else hadn't. How does this all fit in? They're confused. And Jesus says to them in verse 12, Elijah does come first and restore everything. And yet, how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? So Jesus is saying, yep, you've understood the Old Testament correctly. Elijah does come first. But he says, you also got to read the Old Testament. It says the Messiah is going to suffer. And a few verses on that, you can look at Psalm 22, Psalm 69, Isaiah 53. I went over those with you last week. Zechariah 12, 10. There's lots of Old Testament prophecy about the Messiah's suffering. Jesus says, and he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt. Jesus is saying both those prophecies must come to pass. You've got to have Elijah and the Messiah has to suffer. Verse 13, he says, But I say to you that Elijah has indeed come, and they did to him whatever they wished, just as it is written of him. So Jesus here is referring to John the Baptist, who came in the power and the spirit of Elijah. You can look at that in Luke 1, verse 17. We talked about that when we were in Luke. And the Jewish religious leaders, they had rejected John the Baptist, and Herod imprisoned John the Baptist and killed him. Had Israel accepted the message of John the Baptist, he would have been Elijah to them. It says that in Matthew eleven fourteen. 14. But since they didn't, they didn't accept John the Baptist, then another will come in the spirit and power of Elijah before Jesus' second coming. Perhaps one of the two witnesses that we read about during tribulation in Revelation eleven three 3 through 12, perhaps one of them come in the spirit of Elijah, or it might be Elijah himself. And then the kingdom will be established. So Jesus is confirming, yep, you're right, Elijah will come. And so that's what he's describing here. Verse 14, and when they came back to the disciples, so this is Jesus, Peter, James, and John, they come back to the other nine apostles. They come back down from the mountain. They saw a large crowd around the other nine and some scribes arguing with them. So these are experts in the Jewish law They're there arguing with the nine apostles, the other nine, and immediately when the entire crowd saw him, saw Jesus, they were amazed and began running up to greet him. So they're probably amazed because of his prior miracles and healings. They're awestruck by Jesus. I don't think it's likely that Jesus' face is radiant from the transfiguration because if that's what was causing their amazement, then he would have already contradicted what he told them in verse 9, where he said, don't say anything about that. So I don't think it was his radiance. I just think they already had seen the miracles that he had done. Verse 16, and Jesus asked them, he asked the remaining nine apostles, what are you discussing with them? So the remaining nine apostles were going to see, they weren't doing very well in this debate with the Jewish legal scholars, the scribes, the remaining nine apostles had actually failed to cast out a demon from a boy. We see the remaining nine apostles don't even answer Jesus. They're totally embarrassed, and they don't even answer. Verse 17, in one of the crowd, so it's not one of the other apostles, someone in the crowd, and we're going to see it, it's this boy's father, answered Jesus saying, teacher, i I brought you my son, possessed with a spirit, which makes him mute. So he couldn't talk. We're going to see he's also deaf further down. So he's deaf and mute. And when we read this same account in Luke 9, 38, this is this man's only son. So he brings him to Jesus for healing. He's going to describe what's ailing this boy, 18. He says, and whenever it seizes him, this demon... It dashes him to the ground, and he foams at the mouth, and he grinds his teeth, and he stiffens out, sort of like in a convulsion. And I told your disciples to cast it out, and they couldn't do it. So it's this failure. The nine apostles, they couldn't cast out this demon, and so they're remaining silent in embarrassment. They felt like they had failed. That's why they didn't answer Jesus. Verse 19, And Jesus answered them and said, Oh, unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him to me. So, Jesus is now going to have to finish what they failed to do. They couldn't accomplish it. I think this also shows that we should always bring our troubles and others to Jesus for healing. Bring it to Jesus. Bring your problems to Jesus. Now, since Jesus had given the apostles The power to cast out demons. We saw that earlier when we were studying Mark 6. You can go look at verse 7 and verse 13 of Mark 6. They had the power. They had been casting out demons. And since the crowd here in this area is mainly unbelieving people, it's most likely that Jesus' comment here where he's saying, oh, unbelieving generation, and how long do I have to put up with you? He's probably addressing this to the nine apostles. He's probably rebuking them again, similar to his rebukes to them previously. He's told them many times, you of little faith. If you want a few of those, if you're taking notes, you can go look at Matthew 6, 30, chapter 6, verse 30, Matthew chapter 8, verse 26, Matthew 14, verse 31, Matthew 16, verse 8. He has rebuked them several times and said, you're of little faith. So let's watch what happens, verse 20. And they brought the boy to Jesus, and when he saw him, when the boy saw Jesus, immediately the spirit threw him into a convulsion, and falling to the ground, he began rolling about and foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? Remember, the boy is mute and deaf, so Jesus is asking the father, how long has this been going on? Now, of course, Jesus already knows the answer, right? Jesus is omniscient. He knows how long this boy has had this. But what Jesus, he's asking the father this. He wants the father to pour out his heart to Jesus as the healer. And that's what we need to do. We need to admit our needs to Jesus. Come to Jesus with our needs. Depend on Jesus. That's what Jesus is doing with his father. And so the father answers. He says, from childhood. And it, being the demon, has often thrown the boy, thrown him, down into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. So he's telling Jesus, if you can do something, take pity on us. So the man was unsure, the father was unsure if Jesus had the power to heal his son. And Jesus wants this man to see that Jesus is his only hope, okay? Jesus is our only hope. And so Jesus answers him and says, Basically, I'm going to paraphrase. What do you mean if I can? What do you mean if? If I can, of course I can. He says, All things are possible to him who believes. So you have to have faith to access the power of God. And the apostles apparently needed this lesson too. Perhaps this is why they were having difficulty casting out the demon. I'm going to come back to that in just a minute. Just tuck that away verse 24, immediately the boy's father cried out and began saying, I do believe. Help me in my unbelief. So the boy's father, at least he's honest. He believed Jesus had the power, but he's struggling with doubt. And so he's asking Jesus, yeah, I believe, but I'm struggling with doubt. Help me, help me. And that's all we have to do. That's the model we need to have. Sometimes we might have doubt. Just ask Jesus, help me, help me with my doubt." You're there. You're living in me as a Christian. Help me with my doubt. Take it to Jesus. Call on the power of the Holy Spirit that's within you. I love that. I do believe, but help me in my unbelief. I love that. And when Jesus saw that a crowd was rapidly gathering, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you deaf and dumb spirit. See, that's where the deaf and dumb comes in, the demon. I command you come out of him and Do not enter him again. So Jesus again shows that he has power over the demons. And after crying out and throwing the boy into a terrible convulsion, it came out, and the boy became so much like a corpse that most of them said, He is dead. So the demon does one last violent protest before he comes out. It's not clear if this boy actually died in the process. And then Jesus resurrected him, or if he was just weak from all the convulsions, it's not clear about that. There are many commentators that say he did, in fact, die. Jesus brought him back to life. In any event, Jesus heals him. In verse 27, it says, But Jesus took him by the hand and raised him, and he got up. And you look at the same account in Luke 9, verse 42. It says, Jesus gave the boy back over to his father and when he had come into the house his disciples began questioning jesus privately why is it that we could not cast it out so they're puzzled since they had cast out demons before you can look at that in mark 6 verse 13 they had done it before i think perhaps the problem here is because the disciples had had so much success in the past they began to depend on their own power to cast out demons rather than calling on the power of the Holy Spirit and praying to God for the power. They began to think it was all about them. That's at least an explanation. And Jesus then says in verse 29, this kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. And then if you look in some of your translations may have it included, some it may be in a note. There's some manuscripts, later manuscripts, that add prayer and fasting. can only come out through prayer and fasting. This and fasting is not in the earliest, best manuscripts of Mark. But fasting, when you look in the Old Testament and when you even look in the New Testament, it's expected that we will be fasting. Whenever fasting is written in the New Testament, it's sort of like, and when you're fasting. It's assumed that we will fast from time to time. If you want some example, I'll show you one. I can give you a whole list of them. Let me just show you one. Matthew 6, verse 16. Go there real quick. Matthew 6. It says, and whenever you fast, see, it's not saying like you have a choice. It's assuming you're going to be fasting. And whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do, for they neglect their appearance in order to be seen by men. So the only negative thing that's said about fasting that Jesus said was, when you do it, don't do it like the hypocrites that just walk around and tell everybody, oh, I'm fasting, oh, man, I'm hungry. You wouldn't believe what I'm going through. I'm fat, you know, because they're doing it to call attention to themselves. He's saying, don't do it like that. Do it in quiet. Look at what he says. Verse 17, but when you fast, you see that? So it's assumed you're going to do it when you fast, anoint your head, wash your face. In other words, clean up, look good so that you may not be seen fasting by men, but by your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will repay you. If you want some other verses, I was going to spend more time on fasting, but we're running out of time. So let me just give them to you. You can look them up on your own you can also look at Matthew chapter 9, verses 14 through 15. You can look at Acts 14:23, Acts 13, 2 through 3. Those give examples of where the disciples would fast before making decisions. There's also a sexual fast. You may go, well, what the heck is that? You can look over in 1 Corinthians 7:5, and there it says that you and your wife can agree to abstain from sex together for an agreed amount of time as a sexual fast while you're praying and fasting and trying to discern God's will. So there's also something, it doesn't just have to be food. It can be anything. You can fast from anything. A couple of things, let me just touch on that real quick. It can be one meal. It can be multiple meals. It can be for days. One thing that I have personally found that's helpful to me is doing it like on the first day of the month, for instance. That way I can remember it. And I might start it on the night before, like I'll eat my dinner. That's my last meal. So I'll go the whole next day, first day, skip breakfast, skip lunch, skip dinner, and my next meal will be breakfast the following day. I'm not telling you to do it that way. I'm just telling you that works for me because it's easy. If you're dieting, and doing it just to diet, to look good on the beach, and then you say, well, you know, this is my fast. Well, that's probably not a fast. A fast is meant to really deprive yourself so that you can be in tune with the Holy Spirit and help pray and discern what God's will is. I've found it very effective when you're trying to discern something, you're trying to make a big decision about something, there are a lot of churches who will do it, even before perhaps choosing elders or making a decision about a pastor. And that's what you see in the Bible. Before really big, significant decisions, even Jesus fasted. That's fasting. Anybody have any questions? I was going to spend more time on that, but we're running out of time.
1: Oh, just a comment.
0: I love Jesus. Where he said that to get rid of these spirits, they're tough. you got to use prayer. <laughs> yes. Which is what leads me to believe perhaps... The other nine apostles began to believe that they had this inherent power to remove the demons rather than relying on God and praying about it and asking God's help and asking God to do it. Perhaps that explanation seems to fit with the text. Perhaps they had not prayed to God for the power, and perhaps they were trying to rely on their own power. And let me show you a verse that kind of helps support that. I'm going to go over to James 4.2 says you do not have because you do not ask you ask and you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you spend it on your pleasures so what we're told in the bible is pray for things god will grant our request but our prayers have to be i meant to get you that verse have to be in accordance with the will of god okay God's not a Ouija board or, you know, like some genie in a bottle. It's like, hey, I'm praying that I win the lottery today. Come on, I'm going to rub the genie bottle and, you know, go buy a lottery ticket. It's got to be in accordance with the will. And the more time you spend in the Word, we've talked about the sanctification process, as you become more Christ-like and the Holy Spirit is working in your life and you're more in tune with what God's will is for your life, The Holy Spirit actually puts on your heart the prayers that you're praying for are actually aligned with the will of God. Prayer is a strange thing to me. You know, if God is all-powerful and he's all-knowing and he can do anything, he's in control of everything, why the heck does he want us to pray? What's that all about? Well, out of God's grace, this is how my simple mind comprehends it. God wants us part of his plan, okay? He wants us on the team. He wants us praying what he wants to accomplish. He wants us part of it. In the fact that we have the ability now, because of what Jesus did for us, and through the power of the Holy Spirit, to go directly to the all-powerful God of the universe and talk to him, I mean, wow, what an honor we have. And so I encourage all of us to exercise that privilege. He does. He wants a personal relationship. Talk, and then when I figure this out, Prayer and all just me talking all the time. Like, how is that going with your wives, right? Or your spouses? If you're talking all the time, you're probably not gonna have a very good relationship. Shut your mouth and say, now, I've told you what was on my heart. Put on my heart what you want me to hear. And when I do, who should I be praying for? Who should I be interacting with? Who should I go out and try to talk to? Whatever. What do you want me to do? I've got this decision. Put it on my heart. Ask him to put it on your heart and he will. The Holy Spirit will. It's amazing. It's very powerful. So let me just summarize and then I'd love to hear more of your comments. We need to realize and utilize the power of the Holy Spirit that's living in us as Christians. And we access that through prayer. And we should do that rather than depending on ourselves. And let me tell you, I was so bad at this. I mean,. I was a Christian, but I was self-reliant. I was self-focused. It was all about self. I thought I could outwork anybody, get anything that I wanted in life just by outworking everybody. It was all me, 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 and that's what our culture is. It's not about us. It's about God, and tap into that power. It's unbelievable. And I encourage each of us to use fasting with prayer when we really are seeking discernment of God's will on a difficult matter. It's very powerful, and I encourage you to try it. So what other questions or comments might you have on the lesson today? Larry, Just we've talked about this before. We don't really seem to come across spirits where they have to expel spirits. We have to pray to expel spirits. What can you tell us about spirits in biblical times and spirits today? That's a great question we don't see demons possessing people as much today as we did then. I'm not saying it doesn't happen. It was really happening a lot when Jesus was on this earth. That was one way he could prove his power over Satan is a reason for it, why we saw so much more of it. But trust me, the demons and Satan are alive and well. And the New Testament talks about we are in a spiritual warfare. And I see it every single day I mean I've had spiritual attacks on me for some reason usually when I'm getting ready to give a speech somewhere or something like that I mean weird things just start happening I've described the one with you that one time where my power pole got hit by lightning the plumbing blew up the electrical blew up the tree out in my backyard blew up the house next door got hit and caught on fire I mean you know And that was right before a big talk I was going to give. I don't know, is it related or not? I don't know. I also found it interesting as a result of that. i shared that with you. The people from the power company that came out and the service technicians that came to help me restore everything, I was able to share the gospel with all of them. So God used that attack in a way that actually helped advance the sharing of the gospel with others. It's going on big time right now in the Methodist church. I don't know if any of you are following any of that right now, but the Methodist Church right now is going through what the Presbyterian Church went through some years ago, where it's going to split into two churches. You've got a liberal branch that is using black highlighters on the things that they don't want to follow anymore, and then you've got the conservative group that says, no, we're going with what the Bible says. And they're going to take a vote, these churches uh, around the country, and they're going to vote which one they want to go to, or they can vote to become independent. I was working with a group at one of the Methodist churches. Just re- There's several different groups have been coming to me. Just They want to bounce things off of me. And what does the Bible say about this? And I could not believe this. The pastor in a Methodist church stood up and was preaching on sex outside of marriage or even before marriage is not a sin. That was his sermon. And he was going on and on about it, and the congregation just sat there, and thank goodness, one young girl, I think she was a junior or a senior in high school, stood up with her Bible in hand and said, Pastor, I don't know where you're getting that, because that's not what my Bible says. And I am trying to live my life being obedient to God, and it is really hard, and I come in here to get fed, and I'm sitting here hearing this come out of your mouth that's not in my Bible. Where are you getting this? And apparently that didn't go so well, but it took a young girl to call out the pastor, and it is going on, and I've been telling you there's false teaching. It's all around us, our churches. There are pastors in our churches everywhere where there is false teaching. There is stuff that is counter to what's in the Bible. And so I encourage everyone. Look, I've told you before, I left two denominations for that very reason, because what they were teaching was not in the Bible. And if you're in any church, and I hear this all the time, Larry, my family's been going there. We've got generations that have been going here. You know what? Things have changed in lots of these churches, and lots of these denominations, that was one of the reasons for the Reformation. That's why the Protestants broke off from the Catholics, because they started adding stuff that wasn't biblical. And they finally said, look, we're not going with that. You can keep making that stuff up, but we're out of here. We're gone. And it's happening in our churches today. And so if you're at a church, that's why you need to know this Bible, because Satan is deceptive. He's the father of lies, and he can twist things around. It sounds pretty good. You know, it sounds all tolerant. Man, what are you getting so hung up about homosexuality for? Just be tolerant. Be tolerant. It's not a sin. Or why are you getting so hung up with people living together? You know, like you're old school. Man, we got over that a long time ago. It doesn't even register as a sin. That's what's going on. And as soon as you start putting the black highlighter on sins and you don't recognize them as sins anymore, you're in trouble. This pastor was basically saying it's only a sin if you think it's a sin. So I guess that means if I went out out of that church and went and shot his wife and I didn't view murder as a sin anymore, that'd be okay. I mean, it's like as soon as you start going on that slope, it's a slippery slope. So please, if any of you all are in a church and you're struggling, you don't know what to do, call me. I'll try to help you. I've been there. It was painful for me two times to leave the two churches that I left, two different denominations. I'll even tell you, test what I say. I've said this before. I may make a mistake. I am not infallible. This book is infallible, but I may make a mistake. Call me out on it. I may be wrong. Let's talk about it. And if they're saying things at your church that aren't biblical, Get out of there. You're being fed by Satan. A person may even be a believer, but for whatever reason, they've been taken captive by Satan. And Satan is spewing his lies through him. Look, just like Peter. Here's Peter. Just we read last week, get behind me, Satan. There's Peter being influenced by Satan. So it can happen. So that's a long answer to your question. But yeah, Satan is alive and well, and he is wreaking havoc around here. And we see it in our culture. Our culture is all about self, self self-fulfillment, self self rights, self-this, self-that. That's not biblical. In the last days, perilous times shall come. And we shall be lovers of themselves more than lovers of God. Couldn't have said it better myself. That is exactly what's going on. And we see it in our culture. It's all about self. That's what all social media is about. And it's wreaking havoc. So, yeah, we don't see the manifestation of people like doing convulsions and that kind of demon activity, but the demon activity, it's in politics, it's in Hollywood, it's in our churches, it's in the pulpit. And just because somebody said they went to a seminary, let me tell you something, it's in our seminaries, big time. It matters where you went to seminary. I'm sorry I got myself all worked up on that. I was going to say, preach, preach, preach. It'll preach. Anything else? Anybody on the phone have anything? I was just hanging on, Larry. Okay. <laughs> yeah. All right. Y'all have a great week, and we'll finish out Chapter 9 of Mark next week. Thanks for being with us. Thank you for joining us today. Larry would love to hear from you. If you have any questions or comments, you can reach out to Larry at LarryO'Donnell.com. You can also sign up to receive this weekly podcast and Larry's weekly blog at LarryO'Donnell.com. We hope you will join us next time as we continue our study.